Hey, welcome to week number two in our series that we're calling Plot Twist. We're discovering that even in the unforeseen circumstances and situations of life, God can still work in your life and my life to bring about his perfect plan and his perfect purpose. That's what we learned last week as we started this journey through the life of Joseph that we find in the book of Genesis you know, everyone that God used in a significant way, they experienced all different kinds of plot twists. But Joseph, probably more than anyone else, and God used him in a mighty way. And think about it for just a minute, as we talked about last week. In the book of Genesis, there is more written about Joseph's life than Adam and Eve, than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who was Joseph's father. Uh, even more than Noah and the ark, as familiar as that story probably is to so many of us. And I think the reason for that is because God wanted us to understand this is part of life. That there are going to be twists and turns and, and curveballs and, and crisis and tragedy and all those things. And yet God still is big enough and he's large and he's in charge. He's in control that he's working through all of those situations and circumstances. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 39 pretty much for the whole message. Uh, but before we jump in there, let me just say if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to check it out on our website. Also, big shout out to everybody joining us on our online campus today. And so let me go back and quick review just the definition of a plot twist for our study, these five messages on the life of Joseph. A plot twist is a change in our plans that God uses to develop our character and wisdom so we live the life that he created us for. So many times we live below what he created us for, really not the the express purpose, the reason that he created you. He created me on purpose for a purpose. And so that's why these plot twists really are so important for us to understand. So not only can we navigate them, but we can really be in step with all that God's doing to arrive at the place and fulfill the purpose and the destiny, even in the detours that life tends to throw at us. So, you know, sometimes we think that a, a moment in our life determines really the trajectory of the rest of our life. But the reality is a lifetime is determined by what happens before that moment. The moment is significant, but it's not like everything after that moment really is hinging upon that one moment in their life. We're going to see that real clearly in the life of Joseph. And so I want to start off by asking this question because it's what precedes the moment that really is really, really important for you and for me. So here's the question. What kind of life prepares for a life-altering moment? Well, what does that look like, the run-up, the lead-up to the life-altering moment that we can make the right decision, particularly in the face of temptation that we're going to see today? Now, last week when we started this story, Joseph is 17 years old. Most scholars believe where he is right now, now that he's been sold into slavery, he was beaten and, and bruised by his brothers. They tore his robe off. They sold, threw him in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery. Now where we pick up the story, as he's a slave, he's about 25 years old. And the reality is oftentimes when you and I experience like trauma in our life, like Joseph did when he was 17 years old, when we're faced with another difficulty, another crisis of some sort, we tend to revert back emotionally to where we were when we first experienced trauma. 
And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Joseph now that he's 25 and he really experiences a real difficult, brutal trauma, if you will, a, a fork in the road. Is he going to revert back to a 17-year-old boy, which how many of you know 17-year-old boys aren't really all that emotionally mature at all, in the middle of that trauma? Or is he going to be who he really is at this point, who he's become, and that is 25-year-old Joseph? And so what's going to happen? Let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 1. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And and watch the next verse in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. So that's so important to understand. It wasn't like God, oop, he turned his back for a minute, and by mistake, Joseph ends up being sold into slavery. He probably would have defined that moment, that present moment in his life as like, where is God? God, I thought, you know, you'd given me this dream like we talked about last week, that my brothers were going to bow down to me, that, that my parents one day were going to bow down to me. Now I'm a slave in Egypt. And you would think that God had forsaken him, but the reality was the Bible says God had not forsaken him at all. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered even as a slave. And he lived in the house of the Egyptian, of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, there it is again, God was still with him very much. And the Lord gave him success in everything that he did. Joseph found favor in the eye, in, in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put, uh, put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. So basically now, Potiphar so trusts Joseph because God's hand was on him that Joseph is running Potiphar's entire household. Everything, all the details, the money, the, the uh, other slaves, how everything's getting done, all the household. He is literally going to Adam's, going grocery shopping. I, I mean, everything. He's picking out the decorations on the wall. Everything Joseph is responsible for. And then in verse 5, of Genesis 39, from the time that he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessings of the Lord was on everything. Do you know so many times because, could I put it this way, because of the relationship and the spheres that we're in, because you as a follower of Jesus Christ work the job that you work, God is blessing your boss and that whole entire environment. This is one of the coolest things I think about this story of Joseph, that, that God is blessing Potiphar because Joseph is related to him, because Joseph is in close proximity to him. And God does that same thing in the church. God does that same thing in business. Because of proximity that you have towards other people, God's blessing pours out into those around you, in families, you know, in school, wherever you are, because God is with you just like he's with Joseph even at this time. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. And so Potiphar left everything that he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. 
In other words, it wasn't like Potiphar had to cook. It was he just decided, okay, pass me the bowl, you know, a black-eyed peas with bacon in them, and I don't want the green beans right now. That's basically the only thing he had to do, which that's always my choice, black-eyed peas with bacon instead of the green beans, but that's just Greg. So, so that's, that's all that Potiphar had to even think about What was what food he was actually going to eat that was being served. Joseph took care of everything. And then, verse 6, at the end of verse 6, Genesis 39, 6, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now that's a problem. Right there. He was well-built and handsome. Not only was he a slave, and not only was God blessing everything that was going on, Joseph was kind of like walking the room and people just noticed. He was well-built and handsome. It was hard because of his physical features, his physical presence. It was hard for him to just blend in. And what we're going to find is that comes with its own set of problems and its own set of challenges and its own set of difficulties. The Bible describes Joseph was well-built and he was handsome. And then in verse 7, we see the trouble start. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Here's the temptation. What, what is it that you call, uh, what is that? You call an older woman that, uh, who goes after a much younger man. I think that's called a, a cougar. I, I think it could also be called a cheetah. Come on, y'all. That was pretty funny. Cheetah, like cheetah, cheater. Okay, anyway, so uh, that was kind of like a dad joke pun there. I guess it didn't work there. But look at what happened in verse 8. He refused. So this is, this is Potiphar's wife now, and she is proposition, propositioning Joseph, and he refused. And this is how he responds. He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. Now, that's a pretty interesting statement right there. The slave is saying this. The, the slave is saying this to the master's wife. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you. Because you are his wife, how then could I do such a wicked thing? Watch this now. And sin against God. Now, this brings us to like a, a major, major point of understanding here when it comes to temptation. Joseph says, how could I do this and sin against God? Well, what about Potiphar? I, I mean, wouldn't, if he, if he went to bed with Potiphar's wife, wouldn't he be sinning against Potiphar? But that's not what Joseph says. Joseph says, how can I do this wicked thing and sin against God? See, if you and I are concerned only about what other people around us think, that speaks to our discipline, which that's a good thing. That speaks to our discipline. However, it doesn't speak to our character. In other words, character is what if no one ever finds out? That has to do with character. If Joseph was just concerned about what Potiphar would think, about sinning against Potiphar, then that's discipline. He's still saying no. But what if no one finds out? He recognized God knows. God knows. And he'd still have to 
deal with and be responsible for that because God sees and God knows. See, your discipline will only get you so far. My discipline will only get me so far. It's your character that will get you past that moment that comes that's life-altering. And what Joseph does here as he resists this temptation, as Potiphar's wife throws herself at him, it is that's not about discipline. That's about his character. And it's only the character that had developed from the time he was 17 to the time he was 25 years old in slavery There had been a big developmental process in the middle of that plot twist so that he could actually say no, and it was based on character. No, I won't do that because that's going to hurt my relationship with God. That was the ultimate. That was the priority relationship. Joseph was more concerned about what God was going to feel, how God was going to see his actions, than even Potiphar. You know, you have character, this is how you know, when God is elevated above all others in your life. That it doesn't matter if no other human being ever finds out what you give in to, but God knows. And that's the character that Joseph had as he resisted this temptation. So that if no one else is looking, understanding that God is still looking, and I'm going to act the same way consistently even when no one else is around. That's the character that's been developed because of the plot twist. And it's not the first one, it's not the last one in Joseph's life. The plot twist in Joseph's life. Then you know that you're ready for the defining moment in your life because your character has been developed and God is elevated to the most important person in your life. Not even your spouse, not your boss, not your neighbors, not your friends, not the people in church. God is elevated to the top priority. And so I love that how he says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Isn't it interesting, you know, fast forward even in the life of King David later on when he actually does sin with Bathsheba, the prophet comes in and and actually confronts him. He, he takes responsibility, and he, in Psalms, he writes this, God against you and you alone have I sinned. He committed adultery. He had Bathsheba's husband basically killed on the battlefield, but he didn't say any of that. He said against you and you alone. He had de-elevated God when he sinned. And in that moment of re- reckoning, David says, God against you and you alone have I sinned came back to that place character in the repentance we see character being formed in the life of king david look at genesis 39 verse 10 and though she spoke to joseph day after day he refused to go to bed with her even to be with her day after day she's literally this is not like a one-time thing potiphar's wife is literally trying to wear joseph down See, self-control is much like a a physical muscle in our bodies. You have to exercise it. And the more that you exercise it, the stronger that self-control actually gets. But here's the thing. After you exercise it, you do have fatigue. Self-control gets fatigued. And, And so the reality is on any given day, 
You can resist any given temptation. On any given day, I can resist any temptation that, that ever comes by, that I'll ever face in my life. You can resist any temptation on any given day that you'll ever face in your life. However, some days when you're worn out, when you're worn down, when you're emotionally exhausted, you become more vulnerable to particular temptations. And, and, and you won't be able to resist those temptations. And on any given day, you can absolutely resist every temptation. But when you're emotionally worn out, when, when you're physically exhausted, you become even more vulnerable. You know, just, just personally in my life, obviously with my, my father's passing uh, just a few weeks ago um, with, with, with his death, uh, I actually went to a, a couple of friends, leaders of the church, uh, the elders of the church, trustees, my wife, and I just told them, like, like I'm just not really in a good spot right now emotionally. I kind of feel that. And, and the reason why I told them that is because I, I need people looking out for me. I recognize it emotionally. I'm just not where I normally would be. I don't feel that strength. There's been an exhaustion that's taken place. And I don't trust that, that, that I'm going to be the strongest that I possibly can be. And, and so I shared it with those men. They're praying for me. And I shared it with my wife. And she's looking out for me as well. It, it's so important because on any given day, we can resist any temptation. But when you're worn out, Emotionally, when you're worn out physically and exhausted, you're even more vulnerable in those times. And that's why it's so important to have a group of people around you that you trust, that you can say, I'm struggling with this. Can, can, you, can you have my back right now? Can you look out for me? Because that's the moment. It, it wasn't day one when Jesus was in the wilderness that Satan came to tempt him. It was day 40. It was after 40 days of exhaustion. And that's why it was such a temptation. Because Jesus had not eaten anything. He would not drank anything for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights. Then here comes Satan to tempt him. See, he's not going to do it day one when you're God's mighty man of faith and power for the hour. That's not when he's coming. He's coming when you're weak. He's coming when you're vulnerable. He's coming when you're exhausted. He's coming when you're burnt out. And so really, really important that we, we watch, can I, put, can I put it this way, the gauges in our life. How much sleep am I getting? How, what's my heart rate? How, how healthy am I? Because when those gauges are on, you know, full, when, when they're pinned, you know, to the right, everything's fine. But when those gauges begin to slide down just like gas in the tank of your car, you're going to get stuck. And you become particularly vulnerable. I become particularly vulnerable to temptations that otherwise there's no way those things would, would have a, a, an allure for me or for you. And so really important that we understand that day after day, she began to proposition him, and he refused to go to bed with her. And then look at verse 11, Genesis 39. And one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. And she caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Boy, there's something about Joseph. Joseph has real trouble hanging on to his clothes. You ever notice that? 
I, I mean, is his, his brothers tore his robe off. Now Potiphar's wife is tearing his robe off. I, I think the guy needs to get a belt. That's what I think. But we've probably all heard that statement before, haven't we? Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And we're about to find out that's the fact for Potiphar's wife. And so the next verse, Genesis 39, verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. In other words, she's pinning all, it's all Joseph. He tried to do this to me. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and he ran out of the house. And she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. In other words, she's, because he rejected her advances, because he kept saying no, no, no. And finally, when she grabs hold of his cloak, he runs out, leaves it behind. She's like, oh, I'll, sh- I'll show you, buddy. And, and she accuses him of doing what she was tempting him to do. And yet Joseph had not done anything wrong. Potiphar, her husband, comes home, and she told him that Joseph had raped her. And Joseph is thrown into prison for doing the right thing. Joseph is actually thrown into prison for actually resisting temptation and saying no. He's punished in prison for doing the right thing. Here's an important point I think that we understand. The righteous are always vindicated, and Joseph is going to be vindicated as well. Maybe you've been punished because you you refused to cut corners on the job, and, and because of that, someone else, you got passed over for the promotion. Someone else got promoted that you know was kind of fudging on things, not being honest, not being real about it. But rest assured of this, the righteous are always vindicated. Sometimes it's not immediately, but the righteous are always vindicated. God's got a way of doing that. Even though, even those who punished Joseph is very, very interesting. In prison, we're going to find out he still was promoted. See, I, I think the reality is, think about it for just a minute. I think Potiphar knew his wife was lying to him. Because if you're the captain of the guard of Pharaoh and, and some slave rapes your wife, you don't throw him in prison, you kill him. You kill him. He, he wouldn't have let Joseph stand there. He's the captain of the guards. He wouldn't have let him live. But instead, he imprisons him. And it's real interesting to watch the, the series of events that unfolds once Joseph's in prison. See, how you respond to situations in life are very, very important. But how you respond to others' responses is critical. Absolutely critical. And it was critical for Joseph. How you respond is important, but how you respond to other people's responses are critical. You you know, uh, in coaching football, we would always tell our players never to retaliate because when you retaliate, it's always the one who throws the second punch or takes the, the second dirty shot. They're the ones that the referees see, and they're the ones that get the flag retaliation, revenge. You see that all the way up into the, the NFL, even you probably see it in the Super Bowl later on tonight. Someone get hot head and, and get a cheap shot, and then the person stands up, player, and he shoves him. The guy who shoved is the one 
that gets the flag. So how you respond is important, but how you respond to other people's responses is really critical. That goes for not only football, that goes for marriage as well. That goes for almost all relationships. How do you respond to your spouse reveals your discipline. But how you respond to your spouse's response reveals your character. There's a big difference. There's a gap. There's a big difference between our discipline and our character. Let me put it this way. Only your character in a life-altering moment will allow you to seize the moment rather than the moment seize you. Only your character. Your discipline won't do that. Discipline has a, has a shelf life, if you want. It, it, it only takes you so far. It's only character, and the character is not formed in the moment. The character or the lack of character is revealed in that moment. Joseph's character had been being formed from the time he was 17, sold into slavery, to now he's 25 years old. His development, that plot twist in his life, God was using it to develop his character, to develop his wisdom. And in the plot twist in your life and in my life as well, God's using those things. Not that he sent them, not that he made them happen, but he's using them. As we talked about last week, to develop our character. So that in that moment, that life-changing moment, life-altering moment, we can seize that moment instead of that moment seizing us. Look at the next verse, Genesis 39, verse 21. It says, the Lord was with him. Now Joseph is in prison, and the Lord is still with him. He, he was in a pit, then he was sold into slavery in Potiphar's home. Now he's in prison, and the Lord's still with him. God never left him. He's in another plot twist right now. As if being a slave wasn't bad enough, now he's in prison. And the Lord was with him. And look at what the Bible says. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Again, this is the reason why I think Potiphar knew his wife was lying. Because not only did he let Joseph live, but all of a sudden, the warden himself is used, begins to use Joseph in almost an identical capacity as he was used in Potiphar's home. Look at what it says. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those things held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. I think Potiphar probably pulled the prison warden aside and said, listen, i got to put this boy in prison. That's all there is to it. But, but listen, th this guy's got the goods. Any help you need around here, anything you need done, you can trust this guy. Because think about it. What is the most violation of trust possible is that you sleep with the master's wife. And yet, just like that, the warden trusts him with everything. I, I think, and, and it's not there in Scripture, but I just have this hunch that, that Potiphar probably got together with the warden and said, listen, you, you can trust this guy. He can really, really help you out here in this prison. No question about it. And so Genesis 39, verse 23, it says, The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph. There it is again. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now let me just, uh, we're going to leave Joseph in prison right now until next week. We left him 
you know, in a pit, then sold into slavery last week. Now we're going to leave them in prison. But I just want to use these remaining minutes and just, just really bring home and apply what it is that we see here in this story about temptation. Because some of us are in a plot twist right now. When it comes to temptation, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that that you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure. In other words, every temptation that you'll ever face in your life, someone else has faced it, some have fallen, but there are some that have overcome it. There is nothing, there, we cannot, that, that's actually a total false lie. It's a real lie in our minds. But no one has ever faced this before. No one has ever felt this way before. No, hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of people have felt that same thing. Hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions, billions of people have faced that same thing. And there are those that have fallen, but there are also those that have found a way to escape. And every single person God had available for them provided a way of escape. They just didn't have the character to choose the way of escape. See, you can make a way out or you can make an excuse, but you can't do both. God provides a way out, a way of escape, or we can just make an excuse, but we really can't do both. Speaking of excuses, I, I know I'm not talking about any of you out there watching our online campus, but I think it might be helpful just to kind of do a little review of the top three excuses for giving in to temptation. Let me share with you the top three excuses for giving in to temptation because these are so common. And again, it's not looking for a way of escape as the scripture promised us that we just read, but these are excuses why people continue and they give in to temptation. I know you've never done this before. I've never done this before. None of us have ever done this before. But let's talk about people that do fall into temptation and give into it. The first one is this. They justify. Justify their actions by saying, in essence, look at all the good that I'm doing. I mean, I deserve a break, you know. This has just been so hard. Look at all the good that I've done. Look at how hard I've been working. Look at all that I've been through. And, 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 and I've been there for so many other people. I, I just deserve that. You know, it's, it's kind of like just, just give me a little break here. Just, just go easy on me. It's an excuse justifying. What is the solution? We need guardrails. We need guardrails. And, and that's what really I, I, I found myself doing because I, I know that I need that. At this time right now, this, this season, and, and I'm getting stronger. I can feel that. But I need guardrails. I just... I just need a close circle of people around me that know me and care about me and have contact with me just to be looking out for me. Not, not to make excuses, but just really to have my back during this vulnerable time of just grieving the loss of my father, that accountability. See, see here's the thing I think is so important, and, and as a pastor, you know, 32 years of pastoring, I... I've been so proud of so many that, that have resisted temptation all different times, financial, sexual, power, being, grabbing power when, when it wasn't really theirs to, to grab. And yet I could just tell you heartbreaking story after story after story as well 
privacy and opportunity always lead to sin eventually. Privacy and opportunity always lead to sin eventually. One of the greatest problems that pastors run into is how much time they're alone. And that's a, pro- that's a big problem. And, and you, well documented how many pastors, especially well known, ha- have fallen into all kinds of sin and corruption, all kinds of things like that. It, it just, you, you know, you see it all over the news constantly. Most of the time is because they had an absorbent amount of time just by themselves. And the reality is the more time in private, privacy and opportunity always lead to sin eventually. This is one of the reasons I just believe in daily whereabouts for myself. There is always somebody in my life, these are guardrails that I have, that knows exactly where I am and exactly what I'm doing. Whether it's my wife, whether it's an assistant, whether it's someone on the staff, we always, my kids, somebody knows where I am all the time and what I'm doing. And so it's guardrails. Because the more time we have to ourselves without any accountability, any explanation for what's going on, problems going to start. Eventually, it's going to turn into sin, and we justify it. Here, here's the second excuse for giving into temptation. We just explain it away. Because of my history, you can't really blame me. Because of my history, because of, because of my family upbringing, you really can't blame me for these decisions that I'm, I'm making, for these excuses, for, for giving into temptation, for my actions that I've chosen. And, and the solution for that is character. Character. See, think about it for just a minute. Joseph did not have a role model of sexual purity whatsoever. His own father, Jacob, had two wives and basically two concubines to, to, and, and had children by all four of these women. I mean, two wives is just crazy. That's a whole other thing. But four different women. In fact, did you notice uh, we skipped over Genesis chapter 38? And, and I, I'm, we're not going to cover Genesis chapter 38 because Genesis chapter 38 is about one of his brothers and his, it is awful. It's not even rated R chapter in the Bible. It's like NC-17. It's bad, folks. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to look at There's no sermon on Genesis 38 today, or will there be? And so he didn't have a role model. He had a very bad about all kinds of sexual deviancy. That, that was his role model, and yet he still resisted temptation because he had character. Joseph refused to explain away his actions. Well, because of my history, because of the example of my father, because of the example of my brother, you really can't blame me for what I did. He had developed character even in the middle of a plot twist. How do you develop character? We're going to get to that in just a second. Here's the third way that we make excuses. We blame other people. Well, they made me do it. They made me do it. And what's the solution? Self-control. Self-control. You know, think about Adam. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden and God comes and says, Adam, where are you? What does he say? This woman who you gave me, she's the one that, that made me take the forbidden fruit. So in other words, he blames it on the only other two beings even alive at that time. God 
and Eve, but of course he was scot-free. See, this started all the way back at the garden. We blame, they made me do it. This woman you gave me, you gave me, this woman is not me. And what's the solution there? Self-control. And the way that we build self-control is through daily habits. Daily habits. So what habit do you need to build to increase your self-control so that you can say no in the face of temptation? Recently, there was a scientific research uh, on people with self-control. And, and let me just give you a couple of things that they noted about people that have a lot of self-discipline, self-control in their life. First is this. They live longer. They're happier. They're less depressed. They're more physically active. They have a lower resting heart rate. Those that are self-controlled have daily disciplines. They're, they're more helpful to others. They get better jobs. They earn more money. The quality of their marriages are better, and they sleep better at night. I mean, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want and Maybe you're not even a Christian. Who doesn't want that? And it all comes from all 10 of those qualities just from people that are more self-controlled. And so let me share with you a couple of suggestions of how you can really build your character, your daily disciplines. It's in the daily routine of life that we build our character. And I know sometimes, you know, uh, even in my own house, I'm such a regimented person. I just do the same thing every single morning, every single day. Like, it's in the routine, in the routine. And what I've found is it just develops inside some really strong, healthy things. So when that moment of testing, that moment of challenge comes, you can say no, and you flee, just like Joseph did. You're just like, I don't want any part of that because God is the priority. I'm not going to do that. But it doesn't happen. It's not the moment that determines the rest of a person's life. It's everything that leads up to that moment that reveals what's really in their heart, what their character really is, or what their character really is not. So real practical here, some things. And, and, and maybe you do every single one of these. I don't do every single thing on this list that I'm about to give you, these six things or so. But, but here's the thing. Just pick one that you don't do and start working on that. Here's the first one. Start every week at Valley Christian Church. Just make it a priority. It'll, it will change your week, whether, whether it's online or in person, especially with our online campus. There's no reason to ever miss a week. If you have to work on Sunday morning, you have something else going on Sunday morning, you can catch it Sunday night, Sunday evening. You can actually catch it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night too, but catch it on Start the week, every week, in person or online, Valley Christian Church. Here's the second thing. Start every day with Scripture and prayer. And I'm not talking about 45 minutes or something like that. I think it's, it's a muscle. You've got to work up to it. Read one chapter a day. One chapter. And just what is one thing? I encourage you to start reading in the Gospel of John. That's my favorite gospel to start in. I encourage people because it's like Jesus is 30 years old and he's starting his ministry. And just read one chapter. What is God saying to me in that one chapter? What, what, what is this? If I obey that, how would my life look different if I actually lived out what I read there? One chapter and then a short time in prayer every day. Don't miss a day. Here, just real practically, pay off credit cards every month. There is no such thing as minimum. Don't do that. That's a trap that will trap you financially. Pay off your personal credit card completely every single month. You say, well, why not just pay cash? Well, some of those credit cards, they have these great benefits to them. And Susie and I, a lot of trips we take, it's actually air miles that we have. Pay that thing off every single month. 
And so there's a little benefit, you know, to that. But, but don't leave a balance on your credit cards. Pay them off every single month. Here's the next one. Practice a 36-hour fast. There is nothing that helps you to see how much really self-discipline and control you have than eat dinner one night and, and plan this ahead of time. Eat dinner one night. Don't eat anything after dinner and don't eat anything the rest the next day. Nothing. Just a little water, maybe just juice. Nothing. Don't eat anything. And then the following day, break your fast at breakfast. That's what breakfast, break fast. 36 hours. So basically you're just fasting one day, one whole day without food. And if there's just something about that, all of a sudden you begin to realize how big food is really, a, a, that we eat so much more than we actually need. And you begin to see how much self-control you actually have. No, no one's going to die of starvation in 36 hours. It's not going to happen. But, but on a regular basis, Jesus said to his followers, when you fast, not if. It's supposed to be a regular part of our spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. How about this one? Turn off social media notifications. Just go to Facebook when you want to, not when it's screaming for your attention. Or Instagram or whatever it is, Twitter. Just turn off notifications just so, again, you're the one who has control over it instead of it barking and screaming at you. Here's another one. Limit email to two times a day. Again, those notifications that, you know, here's come something else. Just limit those things. Maybe you're in a job you can't do that, but maybe you're in a job that you can. And you don't have to be constantly looking at your phone all the time. Amazing how much peace that you'll have, how much control you'll have, how much more focus you'll have that you are able to train on the daily routine before you face the day of temptation. See, all of us need to build self-control that ultimately builds our character because it's only our character that will sustain us in those life-altering moments. So we're going to leave Joseph in prison right there and that plot twist that he's facing. We'll pick it up next week, but right now I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word that's so practical to us that we can learn from the life of Joseph that even in the middle of plot twists, Lord, that we can, we can make decisions today that will form our character for the, those defining moments, life-altering moments of temptation that every one of us is going to face that's common to all of humanity. God, thank you for the promise that you provide a way out. And Lord, we recognize we have a responsibility today to prepare ourselves to develop our character so when the day of temptation and testing comes, we can say no, just like Joseph did. And that you'll even use plot twists in our life, even if we're punished for doing good, to promote us, to bless us, and to prosper us. In Jesus' name, amen.